0: Hello, this is Ken Butcher. Today, we're in Washington D.C. talking to author and journalist John Burgess. Thank you very much for coming over, John. Oh, sure. Thanks Um, for having me. So, I wanted to start out by talking about Stories in Stone, and I have to say this was this was just you know a delightful find. This was for me, (laughs) and and I you know I happened. It's not a book I would have picked up because I know nothing about Southeast Asia. I know nothing about the, you know, the ancient ruins over there, about the history of Cambodia or Thailand. I, I, I so thoroughly enjoyed it, and I mm. wanted to talk. Uh, Thank I you. A million questions about it, um, but I thought maybe a good, good place to start is to have you talk about the temple site itself a little mm-hmm. bit, mm-hmm. kind of set the, the tone, including. How, how to pronounce some of these things? I'm not
1: even <laughs> going to try to since I got the expert with me. Well, the name of the temple is Sadok Kok Tom. Okay. And uh, it's right on the border between Thailand and Cambodia. Uh-huh. And it was built around 1050 AD. Okay. And it was part of a civilization, an empire that controlled almost all of mainland Southeast Asia. For 600 years, roughly. Mm -hmm. And in this country, we grow up, we know about the Egyptians, we know about China, we know about Rome as great ancient civilizations. And uh, there's this other one in Southeast Asia that doesn't get its due. I
0: I had never heard anything about it whatsoever (laughs) before I read your
1: book. (laughs) Uh, And uh, my father was a diplomat. I I lived uh, in Southeast Asia when I was a kid, so I had some exposure to it. But this particular temple, a uh, special connection for me because uh, I was a journalist in 1979 uh, in Thailand and Cambodia at a, at a very tragic time for, for the country. The uh, Khmer Rouge, who ravaged that country for four years, had been overthrown and Uh, tens if not hundreds of thousands of Cambodians just picked up and left. They literally walked or rode bicycles or ox carts to the border Mm -hmm. where there were refugee camps in the hope of some security and and food and maybe medical care. Mm -hmm. And one of these camps sprung up right at this temple. Uh, And uh, I was uh, I went to that camp often to interview people, and one day I just wandered out in the forest and was just flabbergasted to come across this, I guess, 800-year-old stone temple, rather large, right. uh, just sitting there, untended, uh,
0: now, in the and, forest. And what year is this? This is
1: 1979.
0: And you are what age at that time?
1: In 1979, I am uh, 28. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So, I... Uh, made many more visits back to that temple and uh, and then left and came back to the US and after many years went by mm-hmm. and I took an early retirement and had uh, the idea to go back and and see what had happened to this place right. and uh, it 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 had something special about it which I had found out in the time in the interim which was it was the site of the most important inscription that was left behind by this empire, by this civilization, it was right. found at that temple.
2: Right.
1: 340 lines. And, and that,
0: this was an inscription on sort of a, a stone monolith? Right, a stone on a stone? monolith
1: sort of like, uh, you know, the, the Washington Monument in, in miniature. Four, right. A four-side uh, monolith standing maybe five feet high. Right,
0: right.
1: And, uh, now, did you
0: actually see that when you first visited the temple? Uh, it
1: had long since be re- been removed. It was okay. removed in the 1920s because it was such an important artifact for mm-hmm. understanding the history, the culture, and uh, the, the, the time frame the, mm-hmm. uh, of, of this empire, which run—its usual dates are given from about 800 A.D. to 1435, around mm-hmm. there— uh, at which point uh, it was abandoned, largely. Its mm-hmm. capital was about 150 miles to the east of this temple, a place called Angkor, mm-hmm. uh, capital for almost six centuries and an amazing place to uh, to go to, giant stone temples all over the place. Right. Uh, and one of them, Angkor Wat, which, you know, is the most famous and has a profile that's sort of become an icon of Cambodia. Right. Uh, is, to this day, the largest religious structure in the world.
2: Oh, my God. <laughs>
1: Anywhere. Yeah. Plus, it's a perfect piece of architecture and a uh-huh. perfect uh-huh. piece of art, and you go there and you you cannot fathom how this place was built by the power of, right. of, of human muscles right. and elephants. <laughs>
0: right. And that's one of the things you referred to when you said, you know, it was such an important... Civilization and we, common people like myself, don't know anything
2: about it.
1: Well, it's it it hasn't gotten its its due, but it's it's getting it, and it's been discovered by the international tourist trade, and uh, every year now, two and a half million foreigners visit Angkor. Okay, <laughs> so it's right. it's uh, it's no longer exactly off the beaten track. All right. All
0: right. <laughs> I thought one of the you know you've touched on this already. I thought one of the things that made the book work so well, as a, mm-hmm. as a just as a, some, a read so to speak, is it's not just the story of the temple. It's kind of your own personal story too. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a really invited the reader in, invited me in anyway to the you know this this uh, idea of a young man going in, and then it must have been a powerful experience for it to stay on your mind all oh, those yes. years. You-
1: Very much, it was. Yeah. Uh, well, I uh, uh, my background is journalism. I worked for the Washington Post for 28 years. Right. Uh, and so I didn't want to set out to write an academic book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to write a book that would be accessible. Uh, right. And uh, and I think you know the the sort of device of using uh, using yourself as a guide right. is, is something that can help people enter into a subject that they that's unfamiliar to them and right. and may be a little bit foreboding with, uh, right. without that. Well,
0: for me for me that totally worked. And then the other thing, another. Um, if I want to say the, the uh, mechanisms that you used in there, you also talked about some historical figures, uh, the, the, the Frenchmen that came in mm-hmm. and studied it originally. Right. And so I thought that was powerful to see it through other people's eyes, too. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about those the, the linguist and the, the naturalist, as you call them in the book?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, the naturalist comes first. He uh, he was a Frenchman named Henri Mouot. Mm-hmm. Uh and uh, he uh, came to Southeast Asia like you know a number of European you know men of letters were right. doing at the time to study the flora, the fauna, the history, the culture. Mm-hmm. And uh, in 1860, he went to Angkor, mm-hmm. and he. Uh, he did many things, but one thing he didn't do was "quote unquote" discover Angkor, right. and that is his reputation. But that implies that he was completely lost. But mm-hmm. the Cambodians knew it was there, and right. he was taken to Angkor by local people and and showed around.
2: Uh-huh.
1: He uh, he actually died in Southeast Asia, uh-huh. but his his uh, his uh, diary made it home, right, and was. Published, and he turned out to be, a, you know, a very vivid writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, he turned out to be a good sketch. He, uh, he was a good artist. He okay. made he made very uh, he made very uh, uh, inspiring sketches of these mm-hmm. of these places. And so, good writing, uh, pictures, and publication in sort of larger circulation magazines in France. Mm-hmm. France finally put Angkor on the map for the world, mm-hmm. and more people started going after right. that. Uh, but there, there had actually been Europeans who went to Angkor a decade before Muo, and mm-hmm. nobody nobody paid any attention. But right. Muo uh, yeah. Muo sort of sparked the world's interest. Sure. Uh, <clears throat> then there was a basic issue. Uh, these temples were out there in the forest. Most of them were overgrown. Mm-hmm. And their history had been entirely forgotten. Local people viewed them as the realm of spirits and, mm-hmm. uh, and gave theories like, you know, the gods built them, they built themselves. Right. Uh, uh, there was There was no sort of objective history of who built these places and in mm-hmm. what order. Right. But Muo was among people who noticed that in certain places on these temples you could find inscriptions right. carved into stone, right. in to him a completely unreadable language. Right. And uh, after he left, the French colonized uh, Cambodia and began sort of what they called a scientific study of
2: right.
1: of Angkor, and. One of the Frenchmen who followed Mouot to Angkor was a, actually a, a naval officer named Étienne Emounier. Right. And he came there as a soldier, administrator, and, you know, quickly discovered that what he was really interested in was these languages. Right. And he was one of the first people who cracked the code of how to read these inscriptions. Okay. And the inscriptions turned out to be in two languages. Mm-hmm. One was Sanskrit, the ancient language of India, of right. Hinduism, rather like Latin for right. us, right. Uh, as a, a language that was a live language mm-hmm. many years, many centuries ago, yes. uh, and, it, and is now a, 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 a largely dead language in terms right. of speaking. But there were people in India who knew how to read sure. Sanskrit, and there were scholars in Europe who knew how to read Sanskrit, but there was this other language. Mm-hmm written in a similar script that nobody could figure out. And Emonier figured out that this was ancient Cambodian mm-hmm. written in a phonetic script borrowed from the Sanskrit writing system. Okay. Uh, so it was like the equivalent of Middle English, you know, okay. something something way in the past, but related to the language okay. that modern Cambodians were speaking.
0: And the Cambodian language, as it's spoken today, or maybe even that ancient language, is it more derived Is it derived from Sanskrit or more from Chinese uh,
1: languages? Uh, I would think of it as it's a sort of two-level language. There's uh, uh, It has a Sanskrit overlay. Uh, okay. It has Sanskrit for... Uh, Words for politics, for religion, for philosophy, mm. for kings, the sort of elite language educated language okay. are all words borrowed from sanskrit okay. and then below that is a, a market language which is they 're the same language it 's rather like in the same way that in English, many of our fancy words are from French and were I, you know yeah. brought over by the Normans and became part mm-hmm. of English.
0: A more common or Anglo-Saxon. Or yeah. Okay.
1: That's right. And so Cambodian today as is Thai is a mixture of of an indigenous language and this this Sanskrit overlay from okay. a 1000 years ago.
0: All right. And so Etienne is the one Did Etienne understand could he read Sanskrit, do you know?
1: as i think he uh, that's a good question he never was formally trained in sanskrit whether he taught himself sanskrit i don't know but mm-hmm. but his big you know contribution and breakthrough was learning how to read what they called old khmer mm-hmm. which was the sense the the inscriptions that were in the phonetic depiction of the ancient cambodian language right that was and for a while, he seems to have been like the only person in the world who could who could read that part of the inscriptions.
0: And, and this this uh, monolith that we were talking about was that one in two languages. That is one it, was also in two so languages. Is that was, yes, was that one of the the keys to to breaking the code? Uh,
1: you know, it wasn't actually. Uh, uh, in, in, at one level, you can compare this monolith to the, the Rosetta Stone, right. but the Rosetta Stone really was the key to learning how to ri- read hieroglyphics, right. in that it had it had uh, the identical message in three writing forms, mm-hmm. and the other writing forms were leg- were known, right, and right. so by comparing, you could figure out that the. Uh, uh, the uh, Sodoku Tom inscription is in two languages, and but they are not. Uh, uh, they tell basically the same story, but mm-hmm. not they're they're not word for word uh, mm-hmm. translations of each other. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh,
1: so this stone was not the breakthrough, but uh, uh, it's been very closely studied by linguists who are trying to still uncover some secrets of this mm-hmm. of. Of this thousand-year-old language, right. old Khmer.
0: Right. Uh, still another dimension that makes this book work so well. I, it kind of capture significance, or almost the magic of hey, this is. These are words from a thousand years ago and uh-huh. that, that still seem powerful. Could I get you to just? I was going to read this, and I thought, why, why should I read it? Read that underlined <laughs> passage for me about the about the manga. Okay. Because so, hey, you have a full translation. Sure. Book, sure. I yeah. It was great.
1: Yeah, I was very excited to uh, get permission from a, uh, a, a an academic in uh, in uh, at the University of Hawaii who who did this translation, okay. and she uh, Chani Sa Humphrey is her name, uh-huh. and she very kindly allowed me to reprint wow. her her translation at the uh-huh. end. Uh, so my introduction is what I'm reading here. Uh, to read the Sadak Tom inscription, first clear your mind of any clutter. Be willing to take time to linger over phrases that catch your fancy, to reread and ponder. The thousand-year-old war- words of the presumed author, the Brahmin priest Sadashiva, decline to reveal their meaning right away. Uh, and uh, I, I can tell you, I, I spent a long time I, <laughs> reading, reading, got reading got this no in translation.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: but... You know the thing that's so magical about this is part of it is religious, right? You know, part of it is is praise for the gods, right? Uh, and and I'll just read the you know the, the first stanza uh, of the Sanskrit part. Mm. Sanskrit uh, inscriptions are normally in verse, you know, so they're written okay. by very educated educated people, right? And it starts off with praise for the Hindu god Shiva, to whom the temple was dedicated. Mm-hmm. And it starts Praise be to Shiva, whose nature is proclaimed wordlessly, yet thunderously, by the subtle soul life of the body, which reaches everywhere and quickens the senses of all living beings.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, to me, that just tells you so much yeah. about the worldview of the people
2: right.
1: who lived at that time right. and here it is carved in stone and, mm-hmm. and waiting for us a uh, thousand eight hundred years later, uh, I guess a thousand years later. Mm-hmm. But then, from this inscription, you also learn how practical <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, these people were, and much of the inscription that 's in old Khmer. Uh, reads like a real estate document. Okay. <laughs> uh, in that it's it's laying out how the temple came into being. It's laying out its uh, its exact uh, the property that it owns. Mm-hmm. It's laying out different barter transactions mm-hmm. by which the Brahmin family that presided at the temple. By which they assembled an estate of land mm-hmm. that surrounded the temple and and supported the temple. Uh,
0: At least there be any confusion about the fact. Yeah,
1: that, yeah, it's and... it's written right there <laughs> in stone, and and, <laughs> and you can see. So, uh, in most Khmer inscriptions, there is this this dichotomy between the Sanskrit side, which is more spiritual, Ooh. and and poetry, really, right. and the old Khmer San side, which is all practical and mm-hmm. and tells you uh, tells you very nitty gritty things. You, you will find things such as lists of gifts that were given. Mm-hmm. Uh, you will find lists of uh, of uh, the labor teams that would come and maintain the temple mm-hmm. and. This is a very large temple. I mean, by the size of Angkor Wat, it's small, but (laughs) it's still a very big place. And you can learn from this inscription that there was a system by which various villages around the temple provided teams that would go to the temple on a waning moon, waxing moon schedule.
2: Okay.
1: Uh, So they'd go for two weeks at a time Mm -hmm. and and work and then go home and tend to their own things. And Mm -hmm. then they would be replaced by by another right. team uh, and some of these people are named mm-hmm. uh, you, you have their name in the inscription so mm-hmm. it's, uh, it, it was just moving to me that you, you, you get the names of the aristocrats the people who built the place and you right. also get the names and a little bit of description of the life right. of the ordinary people living in the villages right. around this place a thousand years ago
2: and
0: I thought the pictures in the book. I thought from them, the script itself is beautiful. It's very curvaceous, mm-hmm.
2: and,
0: mm-hmm. and, and it, I was also impressed with how clear it is. It's, it's very clear. Of-
1: now, this 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 stone was such an incredible find uh-huh. for reconstructing the history because. Uh, uh, The inscription says a lot of things, but basically what it is is a history of the family Mm -hmm. that presided, the priestly family that presided at this temple. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: they were chaplains to the kings at Angkor. Mm -hmm. And uh, the the, uh, inscription starts a narrative around the year 800 Mm -hmm. and describes the founding of the empire, where it happened. And that one of the family members was there, okay. <laughs> All right. was there officiating at, at religious ceremonies when the empire was founded. Right. And then you go forward and you get a story of every single king mm-hmm. between 800 and 1050, 1052, when the inscription was written,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and the person, the priest who was tending that king. Right. Uh, and so, from that, you can you can construct a genealogy of all the kings in that two and a half, two and a half centuries. Okay. It's 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 written clear as day uh, in stone, and you and this stone allowed the confirmation of sort of snippets of information that had cropped up in other inscriptions. There are, in fact, about fifteen hundred of these inscriptions, mm-hmm. but. Most of them are just little snippets of information, right. and
0: this lo- allowed you to understand. And this the allowed big you
1: allowed you to understand the, understand the big picture of the the sequence of the kings and what they had built, and basic events of of the empire. And, and to this day, there is no better source uh, than this inscription.
0: Wh- what is known about the decline of the empire?
1: Uh, That's a subject of a lot of study and theorizing. There's there's no written record. But what we do know is that sometime, probably in the 15th century, Mm -hmm. the Cambodian court left Angkor and moved east to the area where the current capital Phnom Penh is Mm -hmm. located. And they literally just abandon these amazing places.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and it's a tropical tropical country. Uh, you know the foliage moved in, moved in very quickly.
0: Now, the particular temple that you you write about in Stories in Stone has that been restored to any extent?
1: Uh, yes, it's been very thoroughly restored. Okay,
0: uh, so it looks completely different than when you first. It thought. looks.
1: You know, I can. It was basically in ruins when I I was there, and I had thought at the time that I was seeing the effects of nature, Mm -hmm. but in fact, what I was seeing, I, I found out when I researched this book, was the effects of nature plus the effects of very... Thorough and vicious, vicious art theft, in which this oh. temple was was covered with a lot of sculpture, mm-hmm. and uh, around in the early '60s, the place was essentially dismantled,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and you know anything with market value in uh, in the international art trade was was shipped off is uh, it
0: very accessible now can you go there as a tourist
1: yeah you can go there as a tourist but you need your own transportation oh. uh, and so if you go there today uh, you might see bus loads of of thai students who are out mm-hmm. on a field trip uh, you might see a a uh, you know uh, some individuals who come in their come in their own car. You don't see many foreigners. It's uh, it's off the beaten track right. for them. Right.
0: Right. Right. Now let's skip forward a little bit with your own personal history. You were for years a correspondent with the Washington Post. Uh,
1: that's right. Well, I was I was an editor and writer at the Post for uh, for twenty eight years. Uh, and that's most
0: got to be a fascinating. <laughs> Uh,
1: well well it was. No. I was I was really blessed with a good working situation my, my whole life. Uh I uh, I was a stringer actually for the Post in Southeast Asia and when I was first when I first saw Sudok Octom I was writing freelance articles mm-hmm.
2: uh
1: for the Post and for Time magazine. Mm-hmm. And then uh a year or two later I was hired back here uh, on staff mm-hmm. and most of my career was here actually mm-hmm. uh, uh, though uh, we did live in Japan for three years in the mid 80s I okay. was the uh, the uh, Tokyo the Japan and Korea correspondent for the mm-hmm. paper and then I covered the early internet uh, uh, in the 90s uh, I, I covered Washington area airports uh-huh. as a young metro reporter okay. Uh, and then I was an editor on the foreign desk on oh. my and my that was my last last uh, job at the Post.
0: So you must have just worked around some of the best journalists in the world. Well, well, yes, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> thank you. But it was it was a great time. It was a great time to be there, and it was it was the peak. Uh, it was the peak of the paper. I mean, though it's it's now very much on its way back uh, back up again. Right. Uh, but it was it was a real privilege to be there when I was there.
0: I want to talk a little bit about the stairway daughters, the stairway guides daughters. <laughs> Let me get yes. that straight. <laughs> Love this book, a novel based on the same sort of time period that we've been talking about. That's right. Different different. Um, Temple
1: though, right different temple, yes okay. uh, uh, this is a temple called Preva here, mm-hmm. and of all the temples that the ancient Khmers built, this one has the most incredible physical setting, right It sits at the top of a fifteen hundred foot cliff mm-hmm. and you 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 go to Pra here and you look off this cliff and you can see sixty miles and you. It's it's an incredible sight, and you also realize I understand why people thought this was a holy place, right? And why this was the place to put a temple, right? <laughs> uh, so they built a temple. Uh, it started going up uh, around the same same time as uh, Saqqara Tomb, and was finished somewhat later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's had the unfortunate experience in the 20th century to be right on the border between Thailand and Cambodia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these are two countries that do not always get along. And uh, uh, it's been a, a the, the subject of a feud over who owns this temple. In 1962, the World Court ruled that this com- temple belongs to Cambodia.
0: Right.
1: Uh, but Thailand is very, very close. Right. <laughs> Uh, And in 2008, 2011, there were actually a a brief shooting border war at Mm. at and around the temple. When you go to the temple, uh, there are two ways to get there now. There's a a winding and rather scary road Mm -hmm. in which you go up this this mountain. Right. And you go up either on the back of a motorbike or the back of a pickup. Mm -hmm. Or... On the other side of the mountain, there's an ancient stairway Mm
2: -hmm.
1: that the original builders built Mm -hmm. and seems to have been the original access to the temple from the plain. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's still there. Most of it is ruined. Uh, Mm -hmm. But... But still walkable. Right? Uh, parts of it are walkable. Mm-hmm. The, there's now uh, the Cambodians have built a, a wooden stairway that runs along it, uh, mm-hmm. runs sort of parallel to it. I see. There are places where it's completely gone, and where it's so steep that mm-hmm. uh, it would be dangerous to right. try to. And, and it's overgrown and. But anyway, you can you can see parts of it.
0: Right.
1: Uh, so this was actually my my second historical novel set in in An- the Angkor civilization. Mm-hmm. And uh I got the idea my my first one was uh set in Angkor, it's called A Woman of Angkor mm-hmm. and it's it extended over a long period and it mm-hmm. had a lot of royalty in it and right. uh, and I decided I wanted to write something uh said it pray here, but mm-hmm. which uh, in which the main character would be someone who wasn't educated right. and who wasn't an important person.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But who was intelligent and motivated and mm-hmm. and and had an effect on on events.
2: Right.
1: And you so a very uh, strong character. <laughs> <I mean. laughs> uh, well thank you. Uh, <clears throat> so I just I, I climbed that stairway a few years ago, and,
0: and how long did it take you to climb just to give an idea of like
1: well we it, we took hours we what? took about two and a half hours doing okay. it, and that was with some stops and uh, <clears throat> you know and <laughs> rests and and right. drinking bottled water and taking pictures and mm-hmm. and things like that you could it's it 's roughly. Twenty-four (laughs) hundred steps. If you uh, there's even an exact number of steps on the uh, on the wooden stairway, but anyway, it's uh, it takes a while, and you you want to you want to take a few breaks. It occurred to me that in in the ancient days there must have been guides on this stairway. Uh, uh, It's too foreboding. The mountain, both in a spiritual sense, people going up it would mm. wonder, you know, what are the spirits around here? How, how do I appease them? How do I mm. not get them upset with me? Right. And if I have a guide with me, I can be more mm. confident about that. It also could have been a, a sort of physically challenging climb in that mm. some places the the stairway is extremely steep. Sure, And again, you might want somebody there mm. to uh, to help you. And so I came up with the idea, and, you know, there's, there's nothing about this in an inscription, uh, that there was a family Ooh. that lived at the bottom. And on a hereditary basis, they led pilgrims up the stairway. Right. And they were both of the temple and separated right. from the temple. And that there was a... a young girl we we first meet her when i mean when she's a baby really named jorani mm-hmm. who grows up in this family at at as a young girl she she succeeds in becoming a helper uh, yeah. on what is normally a boy's job or, or a man's job in right. in guiding people and she uh, she uh, is born into a time when there is a dispute a, a a doctrinal dispute going on at the temple that, that, that divides the, doctrinal the temple
0: dispute. Is that historically accurate, or is that a, <clears throat> was that a that a device to them?
1: The the dispute itself is something that I imagined. Okay, but the doctrine is very much historically confirmed. In fact, in the Sedocok tomb inscription, okay. it's confirmed. And the doctrine is that among priests, uh, uh, there is a matrilineal system of inheritance. Okay. Which means that if I am abbot of a temple, my son cannot succeed me.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: My nephew can succeed me. That is my sister's son.
2: Right.
1: And uh, that is so because the bloodline is is assumed to flow through the females right. through the mothers okay and if I am if I am uh, abbot of the temple
2: mm-hmm.
1: <clears throat> that means that I am of the bloodline, but my wife <laughs> is not of the bloodline
2: right.
1: and therefore my since he is born to my wife he right. cannot be of the bloodline right. however my sister is of the bloodline that brought me to the position, and therefore, her son is of the bloodline. So, right. this is uh, this doctrine of inheritance is confirmed many times in the Sedaqatam inscription mm-hmm. because they make a point of saying that when one priest succeeded another, he was that priest's nephew. Right. <laughs> so, anyway,
0: and in the book. <laughs> The existing priest doesn't, doesn't want that. He wants to
1: deviate from it. History is full of, of very bloody conflicts over relig- religious doctrine. Mm-hmm. And it seemed to me that what could be more natural for a man to want his son to succeed him? Right. Uh, and not want to have this sort of unnatural doctrine mm-hmm. get in the way. So in this story, uh, the temple... Temple community, the community of Hindu priests who who live in this temple and and maintain it and carry out its daily rituals, has split over this question of who is going to be the next uh, the next abbot. Uh, and Jorani, our uh, our main character, our heroine, uh, is sort of drawn into that into that dispute right. and ends up. Uh, Playing an important role in its in its resolution,
0: right. Well, I thought it was very effective. I, I really liked the book, and uh, again, as far as accessibility, if anyone's listening to this that I don't know the history of this, so I, it, it is so accessible. I mean, you don't have to know the history, but it does such a such a great job of transporting the reader there. But that's and that's what I personally like about historical fiction.
1: Mm-hmm. well thank you uh, it's you know it's 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 fun writing it
0: how long did it take you to write
1: it? I probably worked on that book I mean not full time but sure. I ha- had it in my computer for probably three years uh-huh. something like that uh-huh. and uh, in the meantime I was also working on a non-fiction history of that temple okay uh, called temple in the clouds
0: okay and is that book published also yes
1: that book is out okay uh And it is, uh, they came out about an hour, uh, about a year apart, and uh, I I found that in terms of the writing process, when I got tired of one, I I would (laughs) switch to the other. Or when I reached an impasse in one, I would switch to the other and and go forward with that until... It's
0: it's interesting. (laughs) A lot of writers listen to this podcast, so you have it from a... (laughs) <laughs> lifelong professional writer that it's okay to do that a lot, a lot of writing coaches would say no never start another project until you finish one but, but that's great
1: well they were sort of on the same subject so, and and you know doing research on the nonfiction book gave okay. me ideas and context and details mm-hmm. and things for the fiction okay. uh, book so they were in in some way they were the same the same project
0: but, and uh, what about now? Have you got any projects uh, underway that you want to
1: talk uh, about? I do. Uh, I well, I've, I've written four books about Angkor, and okay. I've, I'm now on number five. And number five is—I'm still working on the title. I haven't come okay. up with the right, right. title. Uh, <laughs> it's a a history of Angkor in the modern era, okay. by which. I mean, from French times to now. My current book starts with Henri Mouot, or, mm-hmm. or actually, actually, the French priest who was there a decade before him and didn't okay. get recognition, and goes up <clears throat> to the very present.
0: Okay, sounds fascinating.
1: Well, thank you. I hope I, fascinating. it's uh, it's got this book has a lot of different themes and the sort of writing challenges to tie it all together right. and make a narrative that will. Right. That we'll when carry when did you last visit
0: that area?
1: Uh, uh, two years ago. Two I years haven't. Ago. I, I usually go every other year, uh, mm-hmm. either to research a book or promote a book, and mm-hmm. uh, I imagine I'll be going again when when this current mm-hmm. <laughs> book comes out. But I'm Very sort good. of at the final the final stretch Very for good. it.
0: Well, John, thank you so much for well thank you for introducing us being our gateway to this whole um, civilization that, mm-hmm. that I and I'm sure a lot of people knew nothing about before. Thank you for doing this interview today.
1: You're very welcome oh, I, uh, uh, I'm
0: let me ask you before before we wrap up yeah um, people are interested. do you have a website that, that talks about these books?
1: I, I do have a website and oh. that is and that is It is uh, let's see www.john hyphen Burgess and the name is spelled J-O-H-N hyphen be like boy U-R-G-E-S-S dot net and on Instagram you can see my <laughs> photos at uh, John Burgess underscore writer John Burgess one word underscore okay. writer
0: okay very good thanks again
1: John oh my and pleasure thanks for having nice. me thanks again to John Burgess and thank you for listening
0: more information or to listen to other episodes, you can visit us at themiddleoftheair.com. See you next time.